What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me as per usual, Ben Fisher. How's it going, dude? It's going well. Oh, man. Uh, I'm really still shaken from all of everything last episode. What a, a fantastic and great deep dive into limited content. Yeah, dude. Drop some bombs in the last one. Yeah. And honestly, such levels of pure blissful content may never be again achieved. But uh, <laughs> I guess we should just get going into this week. Yeah, honestly, that feels like that was a lot of value we added there. I feel like, you know, I know us, right? I feel like that's something we can only do probably once a year. Yeah, we set the bar a little too high with, with that kind of like cutthroat limited analysis. We, we got pretty spiky, but uh, it's time to dial back down to our, our usual levels. Exactly. So this week we are back to to Flavortown, everybody's favorite segment here on the show. We do this every single set and we are going to dive into Kamigawa Neon Dynasty flavor in every capacity. Everything that we love about the card art, the flavor on the cards, the story behind the set in general, and all those sorts of things. But before we get into all of that, definitely check out our Discord server if you haven't already. The link to that is in our episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And it's uh, just an awesome place to be. We've got spoilers coming out for New Capenna right now, so it's kind of popping off. And it's a great place, great environment to be when we're, we're trying to talk through all those different things. So check that out if you haven't already. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Huge, huge, huge thanks to all of our patrons that continue to support us each and every week. Perks over there include things like our Draft Doctor series, stickers, show notes, unedited recordings of the show, and our Draft Chaff Hero cards sent right to your door right now. Our Draft Chaff Hero is currently Blossom Prancer. So we'll get those out to you for all patrons who join while that is the current Draft Chaff Hero. And we're also doing our monthly office hours that is available to all of our Squadron Hawk tier patrons as well. Again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash Draft Chaff pod. All right, on to our crack draft type thing. Ben, what do you have for us here? All right, I was hoping to get a Dominaria one in, but that rotated out after just a week. Kind of sad. This week, it sounds like we've got something weird. Of course, this hasn't come out, but it's Ravnica Mixer Sealed is kind of the, the cool special event that we have to hold us over until new Capenna drops. So I thought it'd be cool to dive into a War of the Spark pack since that's one of the ones you'll be opening if you choose to do this kind of Mixer Sealed, which I'm sure I'll do. This seems fun, right? So first card out of this pack is Return to Nature. Very nice, very flexible card. It's been reprinted a bunch recently. Very much in the sideboard, although in Sealed, things things get a little better. And we got to find out if it's best of three, best of one, I guess. Yeah, I haven't seen one way or another whether we get either or. It is going to be Sealed, but we're going to walk through this as it were a pack one, pick one draft, correct? Yeah, let's approach this as, as still a pack one, pick one. I mean, after the end, we can pretend we open this as a pack in our Sealed and you know, talk about how we feel about having this as one of our packs. Next up, Battlefield Promotion. That's uh, one of the white for an instant. Put a 1-1 counter on target creature. That creature gains first strike until the turn, and you gain two life. This is always a little underwhelming, but it's one of those ones when, but when you got got by it, it felt pretty bad. New Horizons is up next. That's two and a green for an aura. It enchants the land. When it enters the battlefield, put a 1-1 counter on a creature control, and the enchanted land can tap to add two mana of any color. We see this effect all the time. We just saw it in Kamigawa. If you want to splash, this is what you need. Yeah, I don't recall this being exceptionally good in this particular format, like in, in Mono War of the Spark. But in the Mixer set where you've got like all the guilds and stuff and you may find yourself in an opportunity to splash something, keep an eye out for them. 
Yeah, a good general rule in sealed is that you're going to splash some bombs anyway. So if you're maybe trying to splash something with just one mana pipped of another color. Funnily enough, uh, New Horizons kind of lets you splash double pipped cards. If you're maybe if you have like two or three New Horizons and then uh, you're maybe trying to splash like one bomb that's off color. I don't know. We're pushing the jank pretty hard here, but look, I would do it. Next up is Crush Descent. That was three and a blue for an instant counter target spell unless its controller pays two. And amass too. Uh, amass is the mechanic where it kind of makes like a zombie army. And the more times you amass, the more counters you put on it. Amass was always really good, but Crush Descent was a little bit on the weaker side. Just four mana for a counter spell and limited is... Ugh. Especially when it's not even unconditional. Mm-hmm. Next up, time to make some profit. We got Burning Profit. It's one in a red. That's the one three human wizard. When you cast a non-creature spell, it gets plus one plus oh until end of turn and scry one. This is a fun one. I, this showed up in, in some constructed decks every once in a while too. It's a nice little card. If you're in the kind of blue-red mana gorger weird and spell gorger weird deck, this is really good. Yeah, and that deck was really solid in War of the Spark. I was a big fan of the uh, spell gorger weird decks. So someone to keep an eye out on. I don't think I'd be like first picking it here, but out of the cards we have so far, that's where I'm at. Next up is Gideon's Sacrifice. It's one white for a short novel. Something about like damage and creature. Uh, I don't know. It wasn't very good. Prevent all damage. Choose a creature. I'll read it. Choose a creature. Planeswalker you control. All damage this turn. It will be dealt to you and permanence you control is instead dealt to the chosen permanent. It's like uh, instead of many things dying, you have one thing dying. I don't know. This is the type of card that, that at best it stops you from losing as badly. And that's not very good. I mean, I guess you could do this where it could it could be like like one mana gain a bunch of life and maybe the ideal situation if you have like a bulwark giant or something you could i don't know way too situational don't play this card next <laughs> next is another one mana card that you probably shouldn't put in a deck arboreal grazer constructed uh, all-star man constructed all-star all right you probably shouldn't put it in a limited deck arboreal grazer one mana zero three it's a beast it is reach when it enters the battlefield you can put a land from your hand on the battlefield tapped I have cast so many Arboreal Grazers, but never unlimited. I mean, sometimes you just, you top deck this and you're like, whoops, one mana, zero three. <laughs> That's not going to help against my opponent's board of like Planeswalkers, uh, giant proliferated stacks of counters. Like, no, no, thank you. Next up, we do have some action though. Lazatep Reaver, one of the black for a one, two, a zombie beast when it enters the battlefield, a mass one. This is probably the best card in the pack so far. Yeah, I was never sad to put Reavers in my deck. You pretty much can't play too many of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just two creatures for one, decent bodies all around. Yeah, solid mm -hmm. card. Some synergy with zombies and blue black, some synergy with uh, sacrifice and red black, just very versatile two drop. And it's above rate too. Like this is two power and three toughness for two mana spread across two bodies. Cards like this tend to overperform. So let's say uh, you cast a Planeswalker, your opponent kills it. You got to get it back, right? So you can aid the Fallen with one of the black. It's a sorcery. Choose one or both. Return a creature from your graveyard to your hand or a Planeswalker from your graveyard to your hand or both. So uh, no, nothing's more disheartening than working and trading off tons of cards to kill your opponents like Soren Markov or something or, or a Johnny. And then they just get it back. Yeah, and some of the Planeswalkers in the set are absolute beaters, like if you can't kill them, you lose. And then if they get to bring it back, you're just like, oh, God. Yep. It's pretty reasonable to scoop to a Lily on it in this format. And if you have a Lily, I might play one of these just to really rub it in your opponent's face. Like, you're never beating that kind of draw. Plus, it gets back, it gets back creatures, too. Next up is Banehound. This is one black for a 1-1 Nightmare Hound with lifelink and haste. And if I remember correctly, wasn't there like a week in this format where people tried the like five Banehound like nonsense super aggro deck with like pump spells and burn and that kind of thing? Yeah, notably it lasted all of a week if that like 
don't play this card. Yeah, I mean, God forbid your opponent has a 2-2. Two, two. <laughs> so, that plan kind of goes out the window. Or even an Arboreal Grazer. If Arboreal Grazer puts a dent in your game plan, then... Probably, yeah, probably not, able a, to rethink. probably not a very robust game plan, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a card, I guess. It's not worth spending the time on. Next. <laughs> yeah, barely a card. That's, those are our commons. Not the most impressive, but I'm taking Lazatep Reaver. Yep. Next up, our first uncommon. It's a Planeswalker, as there is in every pack. So I guess it's kind of cool opening your seal pool, knowing that for sure you're getting two Planeswalkers. That's a, that's a fun idea. Watley the Sun's Heart. Two and a green-white hybrid, so three total for a Watley. At uncommon, each creature you control assigns combat damage equal to its toughness rather than its power. This one's for you. Uh, and then you can down ticker. She starts with uh, seven loyalty, and you can down ticker for three. You can gain life equal to the greatest toughness among creatures you control. So not really a relevant activated ability, but more just the static effect of the, the big butts. All right, I lied. Arboreal Grazer, in, like ramping into a turn two hotly. Now we're talking. That, never mind. Go. We have our seal deck just kind of pre-built for us, but this was never that impressive. It never really did that much. There are some creatures in the set with more toughness than power, but it wasn't like a super deep sub-theme or anything. Uh, it would usually just be buffing the creature's power by like one or two. Uh, yeah, I think Quatley was was definitely more of a constructed card than a limited one here. But it's one thing to mention for anybody who's like going to give this format a try. This is like a Ravnica Mixer sealed thing. This was the first set that we got that had A, Planeswalkers at Uncommon, and B, Planeswalkers with static effects. We've seen both of those a handful of times now, but this was the first set that we got them. Um, and if you haven't seen them yet, that's something to expect. The Like all the Planeswalkers in the set have static abilities. Mm -hmm. Some of them are maybe a little too strong for their own good, but uh, eh. So next uncommon is Invade the City. One blue-red for a sorcery. A mass X, where X is the number of instant and sorcery cards in your graveyard. Good. I like yeah, it. Yeah, this is a really, really solid card. It's your red-white, or sorry, red-blue signpost. And it was really good. I mean, it kind of shows you what you want to do in the archetype. Not so sure that I'd first pick it here. I don't love getting locked into these colors for this card in particular, but it's a great one to pick up once you're already in those colors. Yeah, it's uh, the blue-red win condition, right? If you're like going deep with the spell gorge are weird and, and those other blue and red things and just kind of beating down. And then eventually... You know, their opponent might trade with your stuff or deal with stuff. And then you drop this and then boom, they've got another like seven, seven to deal with. And then there are ways to get this back. Yeah, this is just good. Nice solid. But I'm also probably not taking it first pick. It really locks you deep into a, a very particular vector. Might still be on the reaver here, but our next uncommon will save us. Sean just triumph. That's one in a red for an instant. Deals two damage to target creature or a planeswalker and opponent controls. Or it deals five if you're lucky enough to control a Chandra at the same time. Yeah, well, solid room. You know, yeah. Conveniently hits uh, Planeswalkers where she's, you know, kind of flaming Dovin Bond in the art there. <laughs> he had it coming. Thankfully, we have a rare that will save us from this otherwise mediocre pack, and it's Tulsimir Friend to Wolves. Two green, green, white for a 3-3 Elf Scout. I mean, this was Legolas, right? Like, this just is Legolas. I mean, I guess they're going to have to make a real Legolas when we get the D&D &D set eventually. When he enters the battlefield, you create Vola, Friend to Elves, which is a 3-3 legendary uh, wolf. And whenever a wolf enters the battlefield under your control, you may gain three life and have it fight another target creature and opponent controls. So there were actually, like, there was some wolf sub-themes. There was the Arlen cord that could tick down to make 3-3 three, three wolves. I think there were 2-2s two and she had them come in with counters or something like that. Uh, she her, her static buffed them, I think. Yeah, something like that. And then there are a few wolves that like common, if I remember correctly. So Tulsimir, just 
slam it. I mean, th- this is good enough that you should try to be in green white to play it. And even if you don't wind up in green white, you know, splash it. So if this was your sealed pool, if this was a pack you open and sealed, how you feeling? Yeah. So definitely from a draft perspective, I'm slamming the toll smear. That card was just phenomenal and a great reason to be in those colors. From a sealed perspective, I'm pretty shaky. This is not a great pack for sealed. You might actually try to find the big butts thing is just not reasonable because like even if you found a bunch of cards where you had higher toughness and power, like you need Watley to make that work. And if you never find her, you just lose. If they kill her, you just lose. I'd probably be looking to try to make something out of the red blue spells matter sort of sub theme or banking on Tulsimir with New Horizons to try to make a like Obzon ish type thing start to work at some point and try to expect to go base green white with some ramp. Maybe play the Arboreal Grazer if I don't find anything better. Play the New Horizons to facilitate a splash or being able to cast Tulsimir more reliably and go that route. I think that's what I'd end up doing, but I'd keep those red cards in my back pocket because I think the nice thing about the the red blue cards in this format that that were in that sort of non-creature spell sort of archetype is that that's all they care about. They, they very much could lift and shift that archetype out of this set and put it into a different set. And that'll play nicely when you're opening packs from other sets as well. Yep, I agree with all, all these things. Yeah, same here. Like, this is just not a great pack to see. You're hoping for like a bunch of good green and white cards, I guess. And the ones we have are kind of bad. But I guess if you go Arboreal Grazer into New Horizons, you could play a turn three Tulsimir, right? Yes, that is true. If you get That's really lucky sick. with your land. <laughs> <laughs> that could be pretty dope, but uh, maybe not the most likely thing in the world. Anyway, uh, good luck to everyone out there playing in the Ravnica Mixer. Post some deck lists in the Sealed channel. I'm curious to see what kind of nonsense people come up with. All right, on to our Teferi Tibble. This is our Roses and Thorns style segment where Ben and I share a high and a low for the past week. So, Ben, Teferi Tibble. All right, it's been a busy week. I haven't had as much time to play online recently, but I've been starting to brew some things. I have a new commander deck in the works. I've been looking for some last few cards that I need for Modern. And honestly, the organized play announcement has, has been pretty rejuvenating. It's nice to know that there's once again a simple structure where I could just walk down to my local game store I can't actually walk there. I have to drive there, but I could like drive there and then I could like win a tournament and then win a bunch of stuff. And then eventually there is in theory a way for me, a janky casual player that's like spiking sometimes to make it to like worlds. Like it is a real structure that exists and it no longer takes like a flow chart to explain. Now it's just like a sequence. So that's nice. Uh, that's been keeping me busy, just kind of thinking about other formats that I haven't thought about in a long time. Pro Tours are back, baby. Yes, return of the Pro Tour. I'm looking forward to coverage. Limited at the Pro Tour. Chef kiss. Well done, Huey. You really came through for us. Now, my table, I would say, it's just been busy this week with school. It's the end of the marking period. It's grading season. And uh, you know that's how it is. But my Teferi is that I guess I can share an April Fool's joke. The only April Fool's joke that I'm aware of that I pulled was one that I did on my class. And it was possibly one of the most nonsensical things I've ever done in my life. So April Fool's Day was Friday, of course, the first. Two days prior, I was pulling a prank on my class for totally unrelated reasons as one does, where I told them that in order to finally do physics experiments in a vacuum, I actually had a button on my panel of like random buttons on my wall that I could press to suck all the air out of my classroom. So fellow teachers out there, you've got to try this one. Just like I'm sure you have some like defunct switches or buttons in your room. Everyone in an older school does. So just go over and say, if I flick the switch, 
pitch or hit this button, it's going to suck all the air out. And uh, that way we can finally do experiments in a vacuum. And if you're a good physics teacher, they'll probably even be like, wait a minute, won't that kill us? <laughs> Which a disappointingly small amount of my students actually came to notice. But I was proud that a handful of them were worried. You know, anyway, <laughs> so uh, they were like, wait a minute, you're going to do what now? You're going to suck the air out? And I was like, yeah, you all can hold your breath for like 30 seconds, right? And they were like, oh my God, yeah. So <laughs> they all take a deep breath. I flick the switch and of course nothing happens. And I'm like, gotcha, early April Fool's Day prank. And they were like, man, can't believe it. But then a little while later, it had turned out that that was actually a real working silent alarm switch that I didn't even know my classroom was equipped with. So that obviously made a big deal. Apparently, the local police were involved. And uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a whole bunch of nonsense. I had some chats with my supervisors and uh, everything kind of worked out, but still funny. Anyway, after all that had happened, you know, administration to come to my room to see what was up. And the students were all like, oh, man, he's in trouble. So I told them, if I'm not here tomorrow, it means I got fired. What they didn't know was that the next day I had a field trip. So I was gone all day. So uh, I even told some of their teachers to be like, oh, wow, he's out today. How'd that happen? Then Friday, come back. I see some of my students. They're like, where were you yesterday? Like, did you get, we thought you got fired. What's going on? And I was like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it in class. I have a meeting to go to. And then instead of going to class, I had my co-teacher be the one to like stand by the door and like unlock it and everything. I hid in a, in a stock room across the hallway for like 15 minutes. This is now on April Fool's Day. And I had, I had seeded the conversation earlier. I had told some of the students that I, in my class, like that I saw in the hallway, I was like, oh yeah, I have a meeting during lunch, but it shouldn't run into class or anything. It's probably fine. I just got to talk to administration. And I come in and of course the whole class is like, oh my God, where have you been? Was the meeting about Wednesday when you pulled the alarm? Are you getting fired? Did you get fired yesterday? What are you doing here? And I was like, you know what? I don't want to talk about it. And I like grabbed all my personal belongings from my desk. Like I grabbed my bobblehead and my name card and, and some of the physics supplies, I put it all in my backpack and I walk out of the class. And they just lost their minds. Like it was one of the best just scenes I could have possibly imagined. And this is a class that's usually not too animated, but they were losing it. So then, of course, I came back in and uh, and just kind of smiled at them. And they're like, oh, man, like th he got us. But some of them were like, wait, so you've been planning this for like since this morning and yesterday, too? And I was like, yeah, I've been planning this for three days. So that is arguably the most successful and convoluted April Fool's Day prank I've ever pulled. That's incredible. I only knew like half of that story, but my question coming out of that story is, did you then play up that like, oh yeah, I knew that was the silent alarm. That was also part of my premeditated April Fool's joke. Or did you just no, kind of let them I, I about told that? them, I was honest. I was like, okay. yeah, that actually is a sound <laughs> that I didn't know about. But like the irony was like, should something have happened in my classroom where I did need to pull a sound alarm? I didn't know it was there. Like I right. had never been told in any of my briefings upon closer inspection, it did actually say emergency on it in tiny font, but. Uh, well, yeah, oh but God. that's obviously it would say that if it was going to suck all the air out of the room. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Anyway, my April Fool's Day rant is over. Teachers out there, I recommend trying that one next year. Anyway, Zach, what's new with you? Uh, yeah, so my tip this week is that the weather's been kind of crappy. It's like raining almost every day this week, and that sucks. The wet, the temperature has also been kind of weird. Like we had a couple of really cold days, and then it's kind of warm, but also kind of cold at the same time. And I live in a really windy area, so I don't know. I'm just like left wondering where the heck is spring. Like I just want some nice, like sunny spring weather for a little bit, and I'm worried we're not going to get very much of it this year. In any case, uh, my Teferi is that I took a, an exam today for a new cert for work, and I think I passed it. I'll find out. It said next you week. passed, right? Like, well, it did, it but then it said it had passed. to like it said that it had to be reviewed and stuff. So I, 
I'm pretty sure I passed, but it's not official yet. So I'll get the official response next week, but I was kind of nervous about it. So hopefully that is actually as it sounds. My other Teferi is that uh, Ben's coming to hang out this weekend and we're going to jam a bunch of magic and probably have too much fun. So that's good. Indeed. Apparently, possibly with Dune in the background, because one half of our podcast co-hosts have not seen it yet. (laughs) Although uh, another one half of the podcast co-hosts have not yet seen the Batman. So yeah, we'll let you guys work out that puzzle. But (laughs) 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 on to our listener question of the week. This week, our question comes from Gus WF in the Discord. And Gus says, now that time travels on the table with Kamigawa and the Brothers War coming later, what plane would you like to travel back to time shifted? I would really like to go to Ravnica on the time they signed the first guild pact or Innistrad to spice up the next visit with a baby Soren card. Love this question. I'm curious. I guess there's kind of two ways to look at this, right? There's like literal time travel where we have like modern day characters going back in time because it's and Ben, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't actually know the answer to this question. Is Kamigawa Neon Dynasty time shifted into the future or was original Kamigawa time shifted into the past? Yeah. So the original one is 1000 years ago. So like everyone from back then, they're long gone. It kind of worked out because I believe that was from before, like just slightly before Planeswalkers were a thing. So now our current cast was able to visit like Neo Kamigawa, if you will, without any time shifting necessary. So yeah, uh, Kamigawa takes place 1000 years ago. Uh, Neon Dynasty takes place in like the modern magic setting a few years after the Gatewatch and then all that good stuff. Right. So I wanted to clarify that because there would be kind of, it's kind of a different, different take, right? And I think Brothers War is going to be the same where we're going to be looking back in time on it. Mm, but like, we yeah. will, I don't think we'll see modern day characters in the Brothers War setting. So it's not like characters are actually time traveling. We're just looking at a plane at a different point in time from our normal timeline for the story. So because so, yeah. that would be interesting too to see actual time travel where like planeswalkers not only can shift from plane to plane, but can also shift within time in those planes would mm-hmm. be an interesting um, kind of thing to explore. I think for me, a particular, you know, if we were to look back in time or look at the plane in a different time setting than the kind of canon timeline that we have, I would be kind of curious to see like Ixalan in the past because it kind of feels like a very past oriented set to me. I mean, you've got dinosaurs and stuff like if dinosaurs are the current Ixalan, what came before them? Like what is what's going on on Ixalan in the past, so to speak? I'm so mad you stole my answer because I was going to say I'd love to see Ixalan, but like we just go back another few million years to like the pre-evolution. So it's like the pre-Cambrian. I'm like, yeah. like all the... Because back then, of course, like the range of creatures was different. So like the mythic 1010 is like a, like a de- one of those little like isopods. <laughs> and it's it's like like a foot long, but it, it's stacked all these abilities. And like the minor creatures will be like little krill and shrimp and stuff. Uh, any evolutionary biologists out there, feel free to uh, uh, roast my knowledge of the pre-Cambrian era. But were there even fish then? I don't know. But other ones that I might want to see us going back on are Phyrexia. Like I'm not super familiar with how the Phyrexians came to... To be in the first place or almost like what happens in, on their original home plane so like how did the first phyrexians come about maybe that is explained out there somewhere but i don't it think is, it is uh, i don't think so we have some background information on the phyrexians and i personally think tinfoil hat theory time here i personally think that everything we're seeing now is going to culminate with after we get all the background history from the brothers war we're going to see modern day dominaria we're going to return to dominaria that way and the Praetors are going to come back and try to take over Dominaria again. 
and it'll be kind of War of the Spark-esque, but with with um, Praetors instead of Nicol Bolas. But do we even know that they came from a specific plane? Like, I mean, the Eldrazi are from like the Blind Eternities and stuff, right? So like, mm. is there a separate entity like the Blind Eternities that the Praetors come from? Or do they have their own plane? Praetors are, they were created on planes, right? On Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, like, they, they converted Mirrodin yeah. into new Phyrexia, but we don't actually know. Yeah like about original Phyrexia, I don't think. That's true. I mean, uh, maybe we're going to learn more about that in the Brothers War because, I mean, that was back in the, the, about the time of the Phyrexians. Phyrexians on Dominaria, that was like one of the big conflicts in a lot of the original magic sets. I know it's not out yet. This might be a little bit of, of cheating, but I would say New Capenna because it sounds like it's a, from, I read the first story of New Capenna. I didn't have enough time to read the rest. It sounds like it's a giant, uh, almost a Coruscant-esque metropolis where it's just layer upon layer upon layer of cityscape. Uh, similar to Ravnica, but a little bit different where you have these very distinct Art Deco stylings. And it sounds like it used to, it was once invaded by the Phyrexians, but the Phyrexians lost and were like pushed off the plane, at least from uh, the little bit of lore we found out from kind of some of the, the announcements. Very curious to know what it looks like when the Phyrexians lose, like... How does that happen? We've never seen that happen before. Yeah, well, we know Venser wasn't involved, so that probably had something to do with it. But uh <laughs> RIP. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> how about we get into our main topic, which is Flavortown Neon Dynasty. So, of course, welcome back to Flavortown, which is your destination for all things fun, inform, and function. And Neon Dynasty has some really incredible cards that we want to take the time to appreciate the text, the flavor, uh, the design, the artwork of some of our favorites from the set. And then we're going to talk about them in the context of Limited. You know, we've been playing with these cards for a while. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they somewhere in between? When do they work? When do they not? Let's find out. So first of all, let's chat a little bit about the lore of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. As Zach mentioned, original Kamigawa took place like a thousand years ago. And I think, first of all, we have to shout out the fact that they did a, an excellent job of, I want to say, cultural sensitivity in this case, whereas even the original Kamigawa set had some maybe questionable portrayals, things that, that probably wouldn't fly by, by today's standards, but it's a bit of a time capsule in that way. I mean, it, even just from the initial preview stream of Kamigawa, it was clear that they were really going deep with hiring cultural consultants to make sure that everything was respectful to Japanese culture, which, of course, this is modeled after. So uh, along those lines, this set had a really unique anime trailer, almost like an anime music video, which is genuinely one of the coolest things Magic has ever like put out there on the internet. I had friends that hadn't played Magic in a while sending it to me like, yo, did you see this? This is sick. Those friends, of course, happen to be a bit into anime, but the production quality is through the roof. I think it was the same studio that worked on Attack on Titan. Just really cool thing to have as part of the the magic space cool that they were willing to do that yeah i think it was incredible like that's the kind of stuff that we've kind of come to expect a little bit of in terms of those like pre new set trailers they did a really good job from the first one which was war of the spark and they basically have been putting them out every set since and they've been doing a great job with them this was a step above though like completely yeah. shifted the art style again trying to meld into sort of that japanese influence and yeah absolutely incredible so funnily enough, that trailer, rather than serving as an intro, as some of the trailers do, it kind of summarizes the entire story, at least the main storyline of the End Dynasty. Everything with Kaito and the Wandering Emperor is pretty much summarized in that video. So if you want kind of like a summary recap, maybe pause here, go check out that music video if you haven't seen it yet. It really is sick. <laughs> the, the song's pretty good too. Apparently there's also a manga available online. I hadn't checked that one out, but I think it's for free. Unlike a lot of the past ones with it, which had been like behind a paywall, whether 
paper copy of a book or something. I think this one's just on the internet. Interesting. I had not come across that yet. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. So anyway, uh, our story follows Kaito, who is a ninja planeswalker. Sick. Like, objectively dope. Uh, and his sister, Aiko. It starts from childhood, and they're trained by these Imperials, kind of like the royal house of Kamigawa. But after a run-in with a man with a metal arm who kidnaps his childhood best friend, uh, who happens to be the Emperor, Kaito realizes there's a lot more going on in the multiverse, and he has to try to find her at all costs. Now, all he knows is that, you know, she got kidnapped. The man with the metal arm is behind it. And it's kind of his life goal to rescue her, to bring her back and to maybe defeat the man with the metal arm in the process. So fast forward a bunch of years and we find Kaito betrayed by a former pal, Tameshi, who accidentally kind of fell in league with the Phyrexians and Jingataxias just a little bit by accident. You know, those blue wizards that are always seeking knowledge and such. And he kind of got killed by Jin Gitaxius. Just, just a little. It happens to everyone when you go too far for knowledge. Anyway, Kaito, he's not a fan of this because he hears from Tameshi that Jin Gitaxius and Tezzeret are behind this. And uh, Kaito eventually puts it together that that's actually the man with the metal arm. He ends up meeting Tamiyo, who realizes that the Phyrexians are bad news because, you know, she's a planeswalker. She studies things. And while usually a pacifist, she can hold her own. And she agrees to help. So they attempt to steal the tech that the Phyrexians have been working on, which is this thing called the reality chip. Not entirely sure what, what, it did, what it did, but they knew that if the Phyrexians wanted it, it's probably not good. But they come in a little bit underpowered. They try fighting off Jingataxius and Tezzeret, but uh, thankfully the Wanderer flashes in. Yeah, flashes in. And saves the day with a, a clean sweep stroke that basically just slices Jingataxius in half, which is pretty sick if you ask me. I'm sure they'll staple him back together or <laughs> however they do it. I like to imagine that like the Wanderer came in, did one of those like stereotypical anime style like flash the sword real quick. There's a brief pause. Yeah. Then Jin just like slides in half. And then <laughs> yeah. the Wanderer looks at the camera and is like, not so perfect now, eh? They're <laughs> <laughs> not so complete now. <laughs> or like incomplete. <laughs> Anywho, uh, the, the reunion between the Wanderer and Kaito is pretty short-lived because she's like, ah, I'm, I might not stay here in one place very long. I think that's around then when she plugs the reality chip into herself, which somehow controls her a volatile spark. So she also knows that there's some action happening in the castle. Now, we haven't mentioned the Reckoners, which is this group that's kind of the antagonist to the Imperials. And the Reckoners are kind of the, this offshoot branch that are seeking to overthrow the, the Imperial rule. They think that you know, the Imperials have had their lockdown on society for too long, and they, they want this kind of rebellion to happen. So the, I mean, one thing, one critique of this is that I wish we'd seen a bit more of the Reckoners. and they kind of just seemed maybe maybe a little shoehorned in as kind of a plot device to, I don't know, have like a big fight scene at the end. They already had one, right? Like they already got to have one with the planeswalkers. But anywho, they make it back to the castle, uh, the Imperial Castle, where things are happening because the, the Wandering Emperor, she has to reunite with Kyodai, who's kind of the soul of Kamigawa. And she realizes that Kyodai, you know, is under attack as these Reckoners are coming at her. So anyway, Jin, he's defeated. Kaito goes after Tezzeret, but uh, Tezzeret kind of grabs Tamiyo and planeswalks away. That's not good. <laughs> so he's like, oh, whoops. Thankfully, the Wanderer regains control of the battles, beats back the Reckoners, and says some goodbyes and uh, kind of... And promotes Light Paws, uh, a former childhood mentor to both her and Kaito and Aiko, to be the new emperor in her stead, as you know, she knew she was about to planeswalk away. So there's some more stuff in there, uh, little bits and pieces that I may have missed, but that's the general gist of the story. So big picture, the Wanderer has planeswalked away. 
Kaito goes off to try to find her again because, you know, it's still his life work. Jinkataxius needs some repairs. And Tezzeret has become new BFFs with Tamiyo, who in kind of like a post-credits type scene, we find out has been completed for Tamiyo. So she's now one of the, the Phyrexian army. Anyway, she- uh, that was the main storyline. The side stories were a little bit... They were good. They were fine. A bit forgettable. Some about the commander legendaries, which was kind of cool. Almost like an overabundance of the supplemental content this time around. I just wish it was spread out a little more. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what happens with Tamiyo going forward because not only is she completed now, but she's also under the influence of Emrakul, last we knew. So is she like an agent of both of them? I'm very curious about that because I would love to see an Eldrazi Praetor, like Eldrazi Phyrexian showdown at some point. That would be pretty sick. Oh God, that would probably wreck a plane. (laughs) Yeah. But it, it could be cool. Anyway, let's get into some cards. Let's start with some dishonorable mentions, some cards that the flavor maybe kind of missed or that we weren't just a fan of or or things in in any way, shape or form that resemble that. Let's start with Enormous Energy Blade. So all euphemisms aside, (laughs) what an awesome concept. I mean, this is something straight out of an anime. This card sucks. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. This is so bad. I have not seen one cast. And I see, like, I play so much limited that I see... Pretty much every bad card in the set, usually by the time the you know cycle comes to an end, I have not seen enormous energy blade on the battlefield. No one has ever cast it against me. I have never cast it. I think I've fired like 50 drafts or something. Not in a single one have I ever seen someone play an enormous energy blade. Like just a concept that, that went wrong here. I don't know. I wish it had been better. Yeah, clearly influenced by Cloud's Buster Sword from Final Fantasy. Mm, yeah. But Definitely doesn't have the same oomph that the Buster Sword does. Yeah, I mean, again, I think the only thing I focused on when this card was released, and probably because I saw it through like LSV's Twitter, was just like all the euphemisms and such. But <laughs> heavy, maybe for you. <laughs> but it's just, I mean, it's pretty hilarious and kind of a ballsy move by Wizards, to be honest. I'm pretty proud of them for even tempting something like this. But the name is a really awesome. bad card. The flavor text is awesome. Even the art is solid. It's got this cool yeah. like swing. Just ah. Uh, Kind of opposite of that, Story Weave. A cool concept with a card that just kind of doesn't line up with it. A good card, at least serviceable card. Uh, okay, I, I take it back. Like a mediocre card with, with a pretty cool... Next up, we've got a card that you know doesn't really provide in flavor or function. Story Weave. Something, they had a plan here, right? Kind of to show the, the progression of a saga. You have these pages of a book being flipped. I like it. It's cool. The art and name work really well together. Past the art and name, there's not much else going on here. Like we have a book's pages turning and then that's represented by putting counters on a... I don't know. It's just like a saga combat trick. You can play this if you have like a million sagas in your deck if you're like deep into green-white, but uh, this is usually cut. Yeah, I'm not sure that I've really played it and... Again, in terms of like actual function of the card mixed with the flavor they were going for, it just doesn't, it feels like they kind of took two separate cards and stapled them together because they ran out of like, either they couldn't find art or a theme for the, the card that had this text on it, or they couldn't find yeah text for the card they already had art for. And they're just like, let's just slap yeah, yeah. this on. Yeah, it feels yeah. disjointed almost. Yeah. Next up, possibly the biggest flavor fail in the set, the interaction between spinning wheel kick and fang of Shigeki. Why is it? That the best creature at, you know, common to have spinning wheel kick your opponent's creatures has no legs. Yeah, 
Wasn't this also like a thing? I think this is another flavor fail because I remember people talking about this, but original Kamigawa snakes did have legs and Nagas did not. So shouldn't this be a Naga or does it actually have legs and you just can't see it from the art? Because it's got the four arms like most snakes do in Kamigawa, but then it doesn't seem yeah. like it has legs. Yeah. Hold on. I mean, what about Sakura Tribe Elder, right? Yeah, Sakura Tribe like- Elder has legs. Yeah, I feel like it does. All right, hold on. In the like the OG art, it's kind of hard to tell because we're just like seeing the upper part of it, and it is kind of hunched over, but clearly four arms, and it looks like it's standing on legs. Oh, but wait a minute. In the new updated printing of Sakura Tribe Elder, you can see the bottom half of it, and I mean, it does look pretty different. This is a snake shaman. So if you look at other... This one, this one doesn't have legs, though. If you look at other Kamigawa snakes, they have legs, and Nagas have been historically the creature type used for snakes, humanoid-ish snakes without legs. And that just seems to have been completely like undone, I guess. It's something, maybe it was just too confusing and people were like, why does this snake have legs? And nobody got it. No, but, like, you're right. Kashi Tribe Elite clearly has legs. Sashiro the Anointed clearly has legs. Sakiko, Mother of Summer, these all actually, no, no, still just two legs. Yeah, all the ones from Old Kamigawa, they had legs. So what this tells us is that in the 1,000 years, some very suspicious evolution happened. And now they just... They're <laughs> I just guess all the now? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But they, they still use the legs. snake creature type here. I don't know. I It really, for me, that's a big flavor fail. I didn't get that at all. But it goes into what you were saying about spinning wheel kick. Can't kick something without legs. And that's so weird, though, that they if they had just left it like it had been in old Kamigawa, they would have had legs. I don't know. Maybe this is like a cultural consultant type deal. Maybe they realized that like maybe historically or culturally they, they shouldn't be portrayed with legs. I don't know. This one's outside my breath. If you have any idea what happened, listener, please let us know in the Discord. This seems to be a, I don't know, an unresolved phenomenon. Last but not least on our dishonorable mentions, Assassin's Inc. I wanted to talk in particular about the art here because in, I believe, only two cards in the set, we see this, this very distinct idea of tattoos that are alive and these cool like neon and neon these cool neon tattoos coming alive and like off of their their owner Uh, i think it's in satoru umazawa that we see the other one in the original art printing he also has these tattoos that they can come alive that's so cool why is it only ever mentioned in the art of two cards and nowhere else that there are living tattoos on this plane and you can have them kill people (laughs) like oh my god that's sick why isn't this explored yeah, that is pretty weird. Even in the um, the flavor text for Assassin's Inc. is a reckoner always has another trick up their sleeve or as their sleeve. Yeah. Kind like, of implying that like they have a sleeve of tattoos and, you know, those tattoos will kill you. But oh, so cool. Give us more, you know? Yeah, that's true. I didn't actually pick up on this, but now I'm kind of mad. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> like it's, it's like a small out. detail that I feel like this whole, like, why wasn't this a sub theme for like a whole archetype? Why wasn't like, I don't know, or why wasn't this built into more ninjas? I don't even know. I don't know. I think this could have been explored way further because it's, it's really cool. Agreed. All right, let's get into our actual picks for our favorite flavor in the set. First up, my number one favorite flavor in this set was that bowl of ramen that Dockside Chef is, is serving you. Ramen is delicious. Uh, I think I'm actually going to get ramen after the recording of this episode. <laughs> but no, uh, but my actual first pick is Runaway Trash Pot, which I mentioned in the in the, uh, the intro to this, this whole format, but I, I just have to give it more credit now. This is an homage to Katamari, which is this video game series about rolling up pieces of, of things and like bigger things until eventually you're rolling up grapes and then you're rolling up phones and then dogs and then people and then cars and houses and then you're rolling up 
towns. It's just such a silly, fun game. And I mean, the flavor text confirms it. One day it might roll over your foot. The next day, your entire house. What, what's just a wacky, fun design to have as part of a magic card. And flavorful too. It gets bigger based on all the stuff in the graveyard, which is kind of like all the stuff it's run over and eaten, I guess. Yeah, for sure. One of you'll see this as a theme throughout the rest of these cards that we're picking, but like the top down designs in this set that are targeted at like various sections of Japanese entertainment absolutely knocked out of the park. Like all of them have been incredible. So for me, the first one was Explosive Singularity, which is very clearly an homage to the Spirit Bomb from Dragon Ball Z, kind of color shifted, I suppose. But you can see like folks sending power to the caster who's in the middle of the art. And, you know, it's a massive, they're going to send like a massive uh, ball of energy basically at whatever the target is, deal a ton of damage and hopefully end the thing on the spot. Everything about it is just nailing the idea of the spirit bomb from Dragon Ball Z. You know, funny enough, I just realized that I haven't seen this one in play either. Like, yeah, this, this one's, one's at least a mythic. Yeah, yeah, but I'm thinking back to Crackle with Power, which is a very similar card from a few sets ago. And that one, I think I I got killed by a few times or I killed people with a few times. But I don't know, maybe maybe this one ended up being a little more of a pipe dream. I feel like I haven't seen it at all. Red is also not the best color to be in, to be honest. It's really expensive. I don't know. I do really minor thing, and I know they do this on purpose, but I wish this just said Convoke on it. (laughs) Yeah, that would be nicer. But anywho, what did you mean by color shifted? I don't know much about Oh. Is so that like a white effect in the show? Well, like, like the black. actual spirit bomb is blue. And like uh, whenever you see like people sending their energy for him to use on the spirit bomb to build a spirit bomb, it's blue. And the like need to generate the, the mental state and kind of physical state you need to be in to even conjure a spirit bomb in the first place is very calming. And like you have to be hmm. in a very peaceful state. So it doesn't feel very red to me. But from a magic perspective, it also like this effect clearly doesn't feel very blue. So it kind of had to be a red card. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like how they put it in Dragon Ball Z, it's it's more of a blue effect in my opinion. Yeah, we get it. You want an eight blue, blue deal 10. Oh, actually, so. maybe white would be more fitting. Maybe white would be more fitting. <laughs> Except it would only be able to target an attacking or blocking creature. <laughs> and then, no, then I, mean, say, I just uh, mean like from the, the actual also source card. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, next up for me, I've got the alternate arts of some of the Planeswalkers and Satoru Umazawa. So I love that they brought in manga artists and experienced artists to do these, these alternate arts, which are just awesome. They've really been knocking out of the park with these full and extended art and extended border cards recently. For a long time, I remember distinctly hearing someone in one of my local game stores say, I wish magic cards looked better. It's like for a very long time, we didn't have these alternative frames or alternative printings. And maybe it's a little bit of an overload, right? We don't necessarily need three versions of every planeswalker, like the main one, the extended art, different art one, the, you know, whatever fancy showcase version. And then that's for like five different cards. And then every card that's a ninja has a special shape and every card that's a samurai has a special shape. And maybe it's a little too much of a good thing at some points, but I'm still happy we have it. And I think it's cool to acknowledge that we have been getting a lot of talented artists. I don't think we've had a drop off in quality at all. Like all of the alternate art samurai and ninjas in the set look incredible. Yeah. And it's really cool that they ended up hiring actual Japanese artists for it instead of like whitewashing the artistry and like trying to fake it or (laughs) whatever. So my second one is another homage to basically, well, I don't know if this counts as anime. I don't know if there ever was an anime for this. I think there was before my time though. Dragonfly suit, right? It's clearly a Gundam. When I was a kid, my brother used to build like Gundam models. And so this one kind of gave me some nostalgia factor. 
But I mean, that's kind of all I had about this. The art just screams like I don't even remember the character's name, but like the main Gundam from like the original Gundam shows or. So, oh, so there was a Gundam show. So I was going to say, think there I, was a I show. know this is also before my time, but I think there was a show called Voltron. Somebody yeah, Voltron, Voltron was a different a different thing, though. I know this from like Evangelion. That's kind of like a giant suit up show getting the robot Shinji and all that good stuff. But yeah, no, these are sick. Like just the notion of having vehicles as giant suits and mechas. Really cool creative design. Next up for me, I want to shout out the Yamazakis, who I believe in this set are cousins. We have the, the poet, Norika, and the general, Heiko. And I particularly love the art. My actually favorite art in the set is this, this pairing. The two alternate arts, the, I guess the samurai print things uh, with borders that are just really sick. But I love how they each kind of take up like two thirds of the art. And then for one third, you see kind of the uh, the face of the other uh, that's kind of like smiling from out behind. So I think this is is solid for like internal world building within the game pieces. So like even if you knew nothing about the lore and you never read a single thing, maybe even if you didn't know their names, you could look at these two pieces of art and say, these two have a long history. They know each other and they're foils to one another, which they actually are. And I love that the gameplay mimics that where we have Norika who focuses on enchantments and Heiko who fo focuses on the more aggressive artifact strategies. Yeah, really, really cool. And I kind of like that they went with a different pair of Yamazakis this time around. Like clearly the family's around and it's like they're still doing their thing. Yeah. Pretty cool. My next card here is Kappa Tech Wrecker. Very obvious reasons. Once again, we've got our Ninja Turtles. I'm kind of sad they didn't actually order it that way on the card, the creature type. <laughs> it's Turtle Ninja. And they went with yeah. Turtle Ninja, but I have a feeling that had to do with trademark issues. Um, yeah, we did. But then, like Ben mentioned in a previous episode, they also threw in a little bit of a Fruit Ninja kind of homage here too with the art. And it's just like... I don't know if that was part of the art direction for the card, but I love that the artist took the opportunity to do that. And he's like brandishing these really cool like energy blades to get in. Because this this card in and of itself, like if you told me, if you took away the swords and you told me from the art that this was part of like a cyberpunk set, I probably wouldn't believe you. There's nothing mm -hmm. very cyberpunky about what's going on here. I mean, the ship yeah. you can kind of see has like some lights on it on the outside that looks cyberpunky, but otherwise it's like a wooden ship with these like baskets of food. Like it looks very, um, I don't know, a lot more traditional, I would think like traditional Kamigawa, but mm -hmm. you give him these like energy blades and you're like, okay, I can see it. You know, he's still making an honest living, doing his fishing and getting his vegetables and stuff ready. But if he needs to, uh, he needs to break himself out of a bad situation, he's ready to do it. So I'm a little puzzled now that we mentioned it. I never really dug that deep into the art for a while. I thought this was like a stand in like a market or something, but that is a boat that's clearly water. Yeah. And that looks like a dock behind him and maybe even the moon in the background. So is he wrecking his own boat? Is he wrecking someone else's boat? And is a boat like this, is this tech? I don't know. I feel like he should be wrecking a mecha or something like that, right? Not a, like a wooden boat and some vegetables. Although this is funny. Like it's a great scene. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it is clearly a boat. It's clearly taking on water. And you can actually see on the edge of where the boat has <laughs> yeah, been slashed, yeah, there is residual. Yeah. You can see the residual like coloring from where the swords hit it. So it's clearly him wrecking this ship. Whether it's his ship or not is actually unclear. Maybe he jumped on it and is breaking it up or something and it's not actually his. It does look like it's at least very close to a dock. So maybe he's just like running around this dock, breaking up everybody's ships. <laughs> it's just it's in that case, like fun. kind of a dick move, but it's unclear what these ships can do, right? Like I said, you can see the lighting and stuff that implies that it's kind of cyberpunky. So I'd imagine there's yeah. some extra tech involved with it, but it does look like just a wooden boat. 
It's the turtle that, hate, that hates boats. Yeah. <laughs> now we know. Yeah. So next up, speaking of the uh, stereotypical anime slash through a target and have it slide off comedically, you are already dead. Yeah, love this. Sadly, I haven't had as much success with this in Limited as I have, say, the Yamazakis, who I like actually both in their respective archetypes. And we, I guess should mention the Kappa Tech Wrecker is one of the best uncommons in the set. You're already dead. I've paired it with some of the first strikers every once in a while. That can be a fun little combo. And it pairs well with a lot of the uh, little one ones that have already had their ETB effect. But besides that, it's, you know, it's pretty filler, but possibly some of the best flavor in the set. And I have to shout this out for other reasons. This is now the best cards to name with a like naming objective, like a card that requires you to name another card. This is now the best card to name to just utterly rub salt in the wound of your opponent. Like if you're, I don't know, for example, comboing off, sometimes I think it's like demonic influence or demonic something, demonic consultation, it might be, uh, where you name a card, exile the top six cards, and then flip the card over. And if it's not that, you keep going. It's like a way to, to exile your whole deck. So then you can move with like a Thassa's Oracle or a Lab Man or Lab Maniac or a Jace or whatever. So now people used to name like a, like Abandon Hope or like Abandon Reason, something like that, or, or things like that. But now I believe the correct card to name with Demonic Consultation is You're Already Dead because, you know, you wouldn't have it in your deck. You'll never hit it. You name You're Already Dead, your opponent dies to your effect, and uh, you get to rub it in their face a little extra. That's true. It's although, and I'm being very picky here, it is kind of not accurate because those effects don't make your opponent lose. They just make you win. So your opponent's not dead. You just kind of walk away with the win. But look, at that point, it doesn't matter how it happens. No, that's fair. That is clever. I'm still kind of salty about the way this card is worded because when you use it in actual gameplay, it's really awkward to be like, I'm going to you already. You are already dead. Your creature (laughs) like that's I don't like it. But yeah, fair. You say that as if we do a lot of paper gameplay compared to online gameplay (laughs) right? where where you're talking to your opponent. I wish. All right, next up for me is continuing on with the Ninja Turtle theme. We've got Master Splinter here, Silver Fur Master, as our black-blue signpost uncommon. Now, I mean, this deck did the thing, and it was probably the aggressive deck for the format. I mean, I know red-white existed, but this just did it so much better. And Ninjutsu was really cool. It was nice to have that back, and I appreciate that. And this obviously makes that ability much better. It's a lord. Like, it's just a really solid card overall. You're never sad to see one of these if you're in blue or black or both. And I love it. Again, they kind of hit the whole target there with the homage to Master Splinter. Yeah, just a really solid Lord. The trend towards two mana Lords recently has been nice. This one even has a lot more going on. The fact that it makes the Ninjutsu abilities cost less. A little awkward because this is often the thing that you want to bounce back to your hand. It is cheap. Really, if you're Ninjutsuing anything back that costs three or more, that's really punishing. But things that cost one and two aren't that bad. I almost feel like this should have flash so that you're able to like return it to the battlefield just but with its normal casting cost. So that way you could like maybe keep ninjutsuing. I don't know. This is probably about as concise as a ninja lord design gets. Last but not least here for me, I've got the bug, the virus beetle. I don't know. This is a bug in the code, right? The flavor text here, they'll be debugging their code for days before they figure out what happened. A note from a futurist agent. So this, I mean, it's a computer bug. What more do you want? Apparently there's an, there's like an urban legend that the term computer bug came from like an old server back when servers were the size of closets that someone had like, they were trying to get their program to work and they couldn't figure out why it wouldn't. So they opened the thing up and they found like moths hiding out inside. I don't know what, what truth there is to that. I could probably- No, it's, what, it's absolutely true. 
Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's like, it's something that pretty much every computer science professor has to bring up as part of your curriculum. Like I expected you, you to have a good answer here. So, so it actually is fully yeah. legit that I miss any parts. Yeah, it was. No, that's exactly what it was. It was a, a, I believe the first prominent female programmer, Grace Hopper, um, was working on some computer in at Harvard. And yeah, the computers then were massive. They were like the size of not closets, but like whole rooms. And they kept having an issue where they, and they couldn't figure out what was causing the problem. And eventually somebody walked into the computer and was like looking around the different racks of like arrays and relays and all that kind of stuff. And there were just mods stuck in some of the wiring. <laughs> and so that, yeah, that's where the term came up. Huh. Now I know. All right. So for me, my last one, I'm just going to lump them together are the alt art lands, the full art lands for this set Mm -hmm. there. It's interesting because, and I would be curious to hear what the listener thinks, but each of the colors for these lands, there is an art that I love, like really, really like, and one that I'm like, eh. (laughs) (laughs) but they are so beautiful. Like I really need to equip my draft kit with 10 each of these because they are just so good. Like it's going to take a while for me to find better looking lands. I think they're beautiful. Specifically the mountain 299, I believe it is, is, is my favorite of them all. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. If I could find like an original print of that, I would absolutely get one. That is such a good looking painting. So now's a good time to address it. What is our take on the swamp that looks like a mountain? Uh, yeah. I don't like that in general, <laughs> like that not, not, not that art specifically, but like just when those things kind of happen, I don't like it because the game is, it goes back to the same argument I make with like the black white lands, like the, the night lands from Midnight Hunt. Like mm. they look beautiful. They're great art pieces. They're terrible game pieces because you're expecting mm. something for a game. Like it shouldn't be, especially a piece that is intended to be such a basic part of the game. Like mm. these aren't special cards. These are lands that everybody puts in their deck. The fire of the colors. Yeah. Right. Uh, I have made the mistake of thinking my opponent, like they couldn't have a certain trick up because I was like, oh, they have a map mountain and a plane's untapped and then i'm like oh nope my creature got bolted there goes my double block <laughs> like uh right. not bolted but vice versa it got a it's got minus two minus two or whatever it is yeah yeah I, I don't like that kind of stuff like you shouldn't have to do mental gymnastics to figure out what cards your opponent played especially when they're like as basic as lands but mm-hmm. yeah all right. Well, that's some of our favorite flavor. Let us know what you think of, of our picks. And uh, maybe if you have some favorite flavor from the set that we missed, let us know in the Discord. But before we go, we thought we could talk about a handful of the the new Capenna spoilers, which are rolling out. Actually, we just had the stream today and we got some spicy ones. So I wanted to mention Connives. I think I'm staking my claim right now. This is going to be a strong, limited mechanic. So let's talk about Rafine Scheming Seer real quick. White, blue, black for a 1-4 Mythic Sphinx Demon. This one's going to be your favorite, right? Love it. Yes. <laughs> Flying word one. When you attack, target attacking creature connives X, where X is the number of attacking creatures. Connive is draw X cards, then discard X cards, put a plus one, plus one counter on that creature for each non-land card discarded this way. So presumably we'll see commons with like connive one, connive two, which will mean draw one card, then discard one card, and put a one, one counter on that creature for each non-land card discarded this way. This is a looting mechanic, and looting is really strong. I'm just going to... Yeah. 
just say it. I, I'm pretty sure this will be one of some of the stronger mechanics in the set. It's interesting to see this mechanic or a mechanic like this in this color combination because mm-hmm. a mechanic like this screams reanimation to me, and these oh, colors don't yeah. typically see reanimation effects. I mean, black does, but like it's not really an Esper kind of. It's like I feel like black, white, like that's where you're going to get reanimation stuff. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I I always think more like Sultai when I hear reanimation, Mm. but yeah, yeah, um, okay. But we are on a different plane. These wedges are not the ones we're used to, so they might just be reshaping how we think about them, and I'm cool with that. Mm. But definitely would be looking out for some reanimation stuff for this sort of mechanic to be really good. Yeah. So keep your eye out for Obscura, the Reckoners. Reckoner, Reckoners. Wait, no, that was the set. Whatever it is, the Jund, <laughs> the Jund Shard. It has Blitz, which is featured on Jaxus the Troublemaker, which is three and a red for a two-three. All right, get ready, folks. It's a doozy. You can pay one red, tap Jaxus, discard a card, create a token that's a copy of another target creature you control. It gains haste, and when this creature dies, draw a card. Sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. Activate only as a sorcery. So a little bit of a Fable of the Mirror Breaker backside, the uh, reflection of Kiki-Jiki. You get that effect where you can pay red, tap. You do have to discard a card, but you get a creature. And this time when you make that copy, it gains haste. And if it would die, you draw the card back. So you are rummaging here. Again, a strong limited mechanic. But the wild thing is Jaxus also has Blitz. So you could pay one to red to Blitz in Jaxus. So for the that little mechanic we just mentioned, that is Blitz. Blitz is, if you would cast a spell for its Blitz cost, it gains haste. And when this creature dies, draw a card. Sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. So you get a huge cost reduction, but you only get it for a turn and it dies into a card. Yeah, and the way I've Ben and I were talking about this before the show, I see this also the art on Jaxus is Zoltan Boros, great artist. Mm, yeah. In any case, I see Blitz as like a return to or a nod to Dash, which was a, a mechanic we saw in Cons Block. And Dash let you cast a card, cast a creature for less, typically less than its casting cost. It would come in with haste and then it would bounce back to your hand at the end of the turn. This doesn't get you the same creature back, but it does get you a card back. So it's kind of like Dash. This will be interesting for decks that care about things dying because it's a sack thing. So you'll get death triggers. I don't know that I care so much about Jaxus's actual ability because it feels weird. I don't, unless you have some really cool like ETB effects. I don't know. This card seems weird. I'm not sure where to evaluate this just yet. Yeah, this is a big wall of text. I'm not convinced that the top card of your library is better than just playing this out i don't know i feel like by the time you'd have this like it's not like your dad or blitzing this on turn three then activating it to target your one drop right like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me and then you lose jaxus and then all that trouble you're left with just your original one drop i don't know i think you mostly just want to cast your blitz cards but this is just one rare want to mention the cycle of common dual lands we're getting i figured they'd have these because you know it is a wedge set we're gonna have to cast our cards somehow Let's talk about Waterfront District. It's a land. It has no subtypes. It enters the battlefield tapped. This one you can tap to add either blue or black, and you can pay two blue-black, tap it, sacrifice it, draw a card. So templated very similar to the uh, the campuses, which uh, we had in Strixhaven. But here, instead of using these to scry, you can draw a card. Love it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, like no notes. To be clear, all of them are dual lands. They all are two, and then you pay whatever the two colors that land can also produce. Tap sack, draw a card. So they all, it's all five mana essentially, draw a card, but they're dual lands, they're commons. They do ETB tapped, but they're, you can cash them in later. Like if you happen to try to, like if you manage to flood out or something, you can cash them in. Like I'm, 
higher on these than I was the campuses. And this is a wedge set, yeah. so they're going to matter yeah. even more as well. I think these are probably better than Gainlands and campuses. I guess it depends a bit about the texture of the set. Campuses worked really well in Strixhaven because we had some of those late game decks. Maybe this is a blazing fast format with all the Blitz decks going around and you never get the chance to tap sack and pop this. But like, think of like Lockets, the Lockets we had in, in Ravnica. Those got sacrificed a decent amount of the time. Uh, yeah, this is a wedge set, lot. so I am not expecting it to be a, a Blitzly, Blitzing fast format or whatever. Maybe there will be room for a monocolored red deck that just blitzes like crazy and you die on turn four but i don't see it happening it's a wedge set they're gonna want you to cast your multicolored cards and this is just gonna be something that's worth looking at but and one last thing about the set charms are back love charms charms are so flexible so great always pick them up if you're in the color combo because their versatility is really useful so let's talk about broker's charm that's green white blue for an instant at uncommon Choose one. Target creature you control gets plus one plus oh until end of turn. It deals damage equal to its power to target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls. Boom. That was a, what, clear shot? That's already a three mana instant speed effect. Like you're already getting, if you can cast this, that's just a good removal spell. Next, destroy target enchantment. All right. Like every once in a while, you might need to do that, but probably not how you're going to use it. But the third mode, your favorite, draw two cards. This yeah. is either a kill spell or a divination at instant speed. That's sick. Yeah. And it's an uncommon too. So in terms of limited draftability, you can find them. I am curious to see, it's been a long time since I personally drafted because I kind of skipped Ikoria. I'm curious to see if, if we get like signpost uncommons that are for the wedge as opposed to like mm. the dual colored signposts that we're used to or both. Maybe the charms will be the, the signposts for the yeah, wedge. Signposts, if you will. Sure. But yeah, I'm excited to see them back. I love having these modal cards, and usually the charms are quite decent. So excited to see how they kind of fit the flavor and also gameplay. All right. Well, that about does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully, you guys are excited to get back to Flavortown as much as we were. It's always fun for us to walk through all the flavor and kind of dive into the cards in that way something that we don't get to do too often. So we love doing these episodes. Hopefully you do too. If you do, or if you don't, let us know in the Discord. We do have a, a channel there for feedback and we'd love to hear from you about what we could do better, what we could have maybe tweaked to make this sort of episode more enjoyable. And uh, like we said, the link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. If you'd like to, you can support the show directly via Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft pod. Again, huge thanks to all of our patrons who continue to support us and keep us doing this. Huge, huge thanks. We really can't thank you enough. And if you'd like to reach us outside of the Discord, the best place to do so is Twitter. You can find me at Zach E. Hackett. Ben is at Betafish1. And the show is at DraftChefPod. Thanks, folks. And we'll catch you next week. See ya. All right. So I'm building a new commander deck, as one does. And I've had this Nethroy Apex of Death sitting in my trade binder for an awfully long time. I have a few ideas. They're oh, all boy. stupid. <laughs> so like, it's going to be obs on graveyard, but I haven't entirely focused on what I want to do. I want to do something stupid with its power restriction. So those that don't know, uh, Nethroy, its requirement is that it, when it mutates, it can reanimate any number of target creatures as long as it, their total power is less than 10. So if you reanimate like 10, you can reanimate 10 one ones or as many zero X's as you want. So I'm like, I was sorting through my trade binder before the show, trying to pull out all the zero and one like power creatures. So folks, if you have any ideas out there, I'm looking for good, like big things that are dumb that you can reanimate with Nethroy that have low power, but still have like, I guess, a big impact. For example, Pelucranos Unchanged, the, the black green one, that's a zero zero. And then that comes in with like four or six 
counters on it and then you can do it from the graveyard too. So that's pretty on theme. Shrodstani's Summoner, that's like a seven mana one one that it ETVs and like makes a two two, a three three, and a four four, I believe. Yeah, I'm looking for that kind of nonsense. So if, if any of you have any ideas for me out there, help me build this deck because I don't know what I'm doing with it yet. That's awesome. I'm excited to see what the quote unquote final form looks like. Yeah, right now there's about uh, 40 cards sitting in a giant pile on my playmat. So you may face the, uh, the first draft of this deck tomorrow. Nice. Thank you.